Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there was a man playing checkers with a monkey in a park. Great way, great way to start off a sermon. And um, they were playing, and they were playing all morning. They were playing all afternoon. And as you can imagine, there was a large group of people that really began to gather to to watch this thing. And there was a real buzz in the air, and the conversation really began to center around really the brilliance of this monkey and his ability to play checkers and. The man he was playing checkers with really began to become beside himself, began to become a little envious and jealous of all the attention that the monkey was receiving. And so he heard these compliments long enough until finally he couldn't take it. He stood up in anger and in a tone of exasperation, yelled to the crowd. He says, I don't know why you think he's so great. I've beaten him seven out of 10 games. That's actually the punchline. <laughs> and uh, it's why I don't tell stupid jokes. But but the point is, is that oftentimes people miss the point. Uh, we have a tendency to do that, especially when we're so self-focused. The people during the time of John the Baptist were in danger of doing this very thing, and John was very well aware of it. It would be hard to overstate just how popular John the Baptist was during his day. People were literally flooding out of the cities into a 120-degree um, uh, desert to be able to hear him preach and to be baptized by John, all because the rumor was that this might very well have been the promised Messiah. And so John was not comfortable with any of this. He understood that there was a grave danger, and that is if they were so focused on him, they might very well miss the actual Savior. And so he understood that he was not the point, that Jesus was the point. He was only the pointer. And this is something that you and I and every believer in Jesus Christ must affirm and understand and learn that we are not the point that we are only the pointer to somebody who is greater than ourselves. And what we find here is that what, Jane, what, what, what um, Luke actually does, or excuse me, what John actually does is in his sermon, this is the second half of his sermon, what he does is he points in and he shows why it is that Jesus is superior not only to himself, but to everyone else. Now, this is the second part of one sermon. The first part of the sermon we looked at last week really dealt and emphasized this issue of sin. Uh, we saw that the greatest problem facing mankind is not, uh, is, is not something financial or some kind of health problem, but rather is the problem an issue of sin. And so the greatest answer to this is really for people's sins to be forgiven. That's what we need most. But we can't do it by being good people. We can't do it by earning it in any way. Uh, we have to do what he says by beginning in faith to repent and to turn from sin. So that's the first part of that gospel. The second part of that gospel is not only to turn in faith from sin, but turn to Christ in faith. And so now he's going to focus on the one that we place our faith in. And he is, as John will show, is superior to you and I and to all others who have ever lived. So three ways in which Christ is superior that John points out. There are many other ways, but he points out three specific ways. First of all, we see Jesus superior in worth. We see Jesus superior in worth. Look at verse 15. It says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So during the time of John, rabbis that was teaching people, people who taught the word at the day, uh, they were highly esteemed, highly respected. 
And if you were chosen by a rabbi to be their student or their disciple, it was really a great honor. Now, the good news is you didn't have to pay tuition. That would be, can I hear an amen for that for some students? No tuition, parents, no, no tuition. But you did have to serve that particular rabbi. And by serve, you had to do just about anything they would ask you to do except for one thing. It's a little bit of quoting meatball. I'll do anything but love for love, but I won't do that. Okay, it's that kind of thing. They'll do everything except for this one thing. What is it? Well, in, in Leon Morris's uh, commentary, excellent commentary on the book of Luke, he ends up quoting from our ancient rabbi from 250 years before Christ. And he said this, he said, every serv- ser- servant uh, or every service that a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher. So you get that. So whatever a slave would do for his master, so a, a student should do for his rabbi. And so that means cut the grass, wash the dishes, cook, cook the meals. Whatever it is he wants them to do, will do everything. Except, here's what he says, the loosening of his sandals. Now, the loosening of his sandals has to do with the washing of one's feet. So get this. He should do everything because he's below the rabbi, way below the rabbi, but this particular act is way below even him. He should not be asked to do this. This would be slave's work. And so here's the point. And so understand, let's, let's try to bring this home and make it a little bit more real for us. Get the picture of this. Um, feet are kind of funky. All right. Uh, no matter how nice you try to keep them, no matter how you care for them or how much nail polish you might put on your toes or whatever it is, they're just a little bit funky. Now, add that funkiness all right, to open-toed sandals walking around in the first century desert for all of your life, and now we have a whole other level of funkiness. Can I get an amen, right? And so basically what they're saying is you got to do everything, but just don't touch those. All right, don't touch those. They shouldn't have to touch those. And so John comes on the scene and he uses this one thing that, that students weren't to have to do or be made to do. And he sits there and he says, just to let you know how much greater the one is that comes than me, as great as you think I am. Now, remember, this is coming from the man to whom Jesus said no greater man had ever lived. He says, I am unworthy to be able to untie his tie, his, his, um, his, what are those things called? Sandals. Thank you very much. I have a lot of education and sometimes it shows. And so uh, I'm not worthy to be able to untie. And so he's really setting up going, well, he must be infinitely above him. Now, this is interesting because the rabbi was not to require that of his student. But later on with Jesus Christ, what do we find at the very end of his life? That he actually turns the tables and he takes on the act of humility and he does what, what most servants would not do. And what does he do? He actually begins to wash the feet of his very disciples. He turns it all the way around. And so what Luke's point or John's point is here is that this, is that we must not lose sight of Jesus' superior worth. Unfortunately, you and I do that way too often. Here's a couple ways that we know that we've lost the worth and value of God, that we're beginning to value ourselves even above our Savior, Jesus Christ. We often know that we are doing this, that we lose sight of this when we need to be prodded and poked and pleaded with to serve Christ. In all reality, we're not even worthy to serve him. So when we're not using the gifts and abilities to serve others, which serving Christ by serving others, and we have a hard time doing that, we've lost sight of how valuable Christ is. And not only that, but we also lose sight of his infinite worth when, when you and I are constantly getting our feelings hurt while we are serving others because in all actuality, we're serving ourselves. 
when we don't have people tell us how good we are, what a good job we are, we get our feelings hurt, we take our ball and we end up wanting to go home. We don't want to serve anymore. The whole time trying to convince everybody that we do everything for the glory of God when in reality we're doing it for our own glory. We've lost sight of the value of God. And third, we often lose sight of how superior his superior worth when we grumble and complain when things don't go our way. Anybody like that here? You come home, men, from a long day at work. You sit there. You, you sit down for a meal, and you go, spaghetti again? All right, that's one of those ideas. Now, the reason I know that illustration is because I am that illustration. I've said it many times, and I'm not proud of it. But we come in, or we come into the house of God, and we go, well, I don't like this song, or I don't like the temperature, or I don't like this guy speaking. And then what we would ultimately say is this, find another church. No, I wouldn't say that. What we would say is we've lost sight of God's value and worth, right? Because it's not about what you like. It's about us sitting there going, what is it that brings most glory for God? And what does he like? What does he ultimately want? And so what he says is he just sits here and he's, he's letting him know that constantly the reason that he's able to always put Christ first and not make it about him is because he sees the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. And this is what I love that he does. One of the ways he does it is he has this little statement that he's known for when he says, I must decrease and he must what? Increase, Right? Another way in modern vernacular to say that is simply to say, the world needs less of me and it needs more of Jesus Christ. And so how do we do that? What it is, is every single day, you and I understanding his worth and understanding us in light of his worth, we're not worthless because he loves us and he sent his son to die for us, but we're certainly not worthy of him. And so what we do is you and I look at Christ, we humble ourselves, we die to ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis. And as we're dying to ourselves, Christ is seen more through us and he works through us. And that's exactly what a lost world needs, amen? And so what do we do? We pray that we make this a prayer less of me and more of you, Christ. We see his superior worth. Number two, Jesus superior in ministry. Jesus superior in ministry. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, we see a contrast between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. In other words, there are two ministries that they took part in. In the beginning of verse 16, John says, I baptize you with water. Do you see that? The end of verse 16, he says, but he, meaning Jesus, the Messiah, will, be, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So remember what John's baptism was. It was a baptism unto repentance. Now, let me explain that. He would call people out into the desert and he would say, you need to repent and turn from your sin. And as a demonstration, as an outward demonstration of the inward reality of you actually repenting, I want to dunk you into this water. I want you to take part in baptism. So it's an outward sign of an, what, inward reality. So his baptism, John's baptism, is external and it's physical. Anybody can do it, all right? Jesus comes on the line and he doesn't baptize people with water, but with the Holy Spirit, meaning that his ministry is going to be internal and it's going to be spiritual. Now, uh, just so that you know, we're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is what God, Christ, Jesus is gonna baptize people with. Now, you've heard that term, baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so let me clarify this, uh, just so that we know, there are two different views. So all scholars, people who believe the Bible, Christians, they all believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They just disagree on when and what. That is, when that occurs and what that actually means. So when, so one group views as the baptism of the Holy Spirit as it being separate of the point of salvation, two distinct experiences. 
They view it as, okay, you, 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 you repent and you believe in Jesus Christ, you're born again, and then later on down the line, somebody tells you that there's this Holy Spirit that you really need, and then you end up praying to receive the Holy Spirit. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and sometimes it's evidenced by speaking in tongues at that particular point. Does that sound familiar? Okay, so that's one particular view. I don't hold to that view. I don't think that's the biblical view. Instead, the other view is this, is that salvation and baptism of the Holy Spirit happen simultaneously. It's at the same exact point. So when a person repents and believes, they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is, that they're inward, they're they're changed. The old self has passed away. Everything now has become new. That's one in the same event. In fact, when you look at the scriptures, how, and it says, how do you know that you're born again? You know because the spirit within you is producing fruit, which is consistent with repentance. So if the Holy Spirit isn't in you, then the scriptures ultimately teach that we are not born again. This is the way that Paul says it. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 13, Paul wrote, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now listen to this line. For in one spirit we were all baptized in one body. What is the body that we were baptized in? The body of Christ. When you enter into the body of Christ, enter into the church, that is when you are a believer by Christ. He says, how did we get into that body? By being baptized by the Holy Spirit into it. Okay, so does that make sense? Not really? All right, we'll talk later. Uh, But it may not make sense, but here's what John is ultimately saying about it. What he's saying is, I have an inferior ministry to the person of Jesus Christ. I can get you wet, okay? He goes, but he can cleanse your heart. I can prepare you for salvation, but only he can make you saved. Only he can grant you salvation and convert you into salvation, all right? So he says he's infinitely superior. And as a pastor, I cannot tell you how comforting this is to my heart. It, is, it, is, it allows me this truth, this single truth for me to be able to sleep tonight when I'm able to sleep after beating myself up. I'll be able to sleep And the reason for that is, is because I have to constantly remind myself what is my responsibility and what is not my responsibility. What is my responsibility as a preacher of the gospel is to preach the gospel in season and out of season, whether it's popular or whether it's not popular, to preach it as it's written and as it's intended. Likewise, you are called as witnesses to share the clear gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our role. We can share it. We can tell people that they must repent, tell them that there is sin to be repented, tell them that there is a judgment that is coming. We can tell them that Jesus Christ himself died for them in their place so that they wouldn't have to endure that judgment, and if they would repent and place their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, that they would indeed be saved. That is our part. We cannot make them believe. We cannot convert their heart. We cannot regenerate them in any way, shape, or form. Only Jesus Christ can. So what it allows us to do is not to place a burden on us that was never meant for you and I to bear. And people will do this many times. They'll sit back and somebody's not coming to face somebody that they love. What do I need to do? What do I need to say? Do I need to say something different? Then they begin to say things that, 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 that really are, they're trying not to be offensive because they don't want to deter the person to come into faith in Christ. And then they distort the truth of their own sinfulness. And so they're not really sharing the gospel at all because they think that ultimately it's up to them to be able to lead this individual to Christ because they're saying all of the right things. And that's not the case at all. He says what you and I need to do is just be as clear 
as we possibly can with the gospel and let, do, let Jesus do what only Jesus Christ can do. This particular thing is pushed over and over again in the scriptures. Uh, Paul recognized this. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, he says there, excuse me, and, um, in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, he says this. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He says, we planted, this guy kept telling people more about the gospel. He goes, but God is the one that brought salvation. He recognizes this. And then Jesus wants us to know it as well. In Mark chapter 4, in the parable of the seed growing, Jesus said this, the kingdom of God is as, as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Why is he able? What, this picture of sowing seed in the New Testament is constantly a picture of us sharing the gospel, right? Think of even the, uh, the parable of the sower in the seed. This is how you and I are. He says, go and share the gospel. You're like, where do you want us to sow it? Just sow it everywhere. You don't know the heart of man. Just sow it out there. It's going to fall on some hard hearts. It's going to fall on some crowded hearts and some thorny hearts. You don't know because you don't know the heart of man. Just broad seeds, scatter it everywhere, and I'll do the rest, and I'll drive it home. Do you see what he says there? And I'll drive it home. And he says, this is the role. This is what you do. And then what I love in this other parable, the parable of the seed growing, is it says the man sleeps. Why is he able to sleep? Because he's not trying to hold up a burden that's not his own. The worst burden you can possibly uphold is to try to take care of something that's not your responsibility to take care of, nor do you have the power to be able to do it. But when you rest, you say, did everything I can. Lord, it's your opportunity now. You do what you can only do. And what I love about this is at the end, he says, and then it begins to sprout and it begins to grow and he knows not how. You cannot take any, any credit for doing something if you don't even know how it works. We don't know how God actually takes the word, drives it in and brings about salvation and regenerates the heart. We don't know it. We, we can describe it, but we don't know exactly how he does it. We don't have the power to be able to do it. And so what he says is God ultimately gets the glory in all of it. I don't have the power Jesus Christ does. We get it. His ministry is superior. But notice something else. Uh, but well, let me note something before we move on. This doesn't mean we become lazy, Right? It doesn't mean because I, I hear some folks, maybe automatically they begin to say, well, what does it matter that we do anything anyway? The reason we don't say that here is because we have better theology than that. Yes, church? It's because we don't sit back and go, well, let's let go and let God. God will do it. God doesn't need me in the process. God has graciously and sovereignly chosen before the creation of the world that when people came to faith in Christ, the means by which they come to faith in Christ would be through the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His saints share that gospel. And so what we do is we get excited and we get fired up about the fact that we get to share something that God is going to use in people's lives that's going to bring them to faith, forgiveness, and eternal life. And so here, this is a part of Jesus' ministry, not only in the fact uh, that, that we see here that he can only do, that only he can do certain things, but we also see it through the Holy Spirit, but we also see it that he's going to be baptized in fire. Did you notice that? Not only in the Holy Spirit, but also with fire. Now, there's some disagreement again. Some people would say, well, that Holy Spirit is just a reference or the fire is just a reference to the Holy Spirit. They reference Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost when the tongues of fire come down, when the Holy Spirit descends and they go, that's what he's talking about. So he's talking about just the same thing. I don't think that's what he's referring to because of the context. 
because of the next verse in verse 17. I think what he's actually talking about here is fire is actually baptism by fire. And so here he says in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear this threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In the New Testament, even in the old, when we look to Psalm 1 in Matthew chapter 3, this picture of separating the chaff from the wheat is always a picture of God's divine judgment, that God will come, that God will judge. He will determine who is in, and he will ultimately determine who is out. He has the right to be able to do that. We do not. So the picture is of this is of a very common act that would take place. They'd be very familiar with this. Farmer brings in the wheat. He now needs to separate the wheat and the chaff. The chaff is the outward covering of those kernels of grain. You can't eat it. You got to get rid of it. You got to separate it. The way you do is you take this winnowing fork and you put it into the wheat, you throw it up in the air. When you throw it up in the air, the wind blows through, drives away the chaff, and then the kernels fall back to the ground. It's a separation. And he uses this to demonstrate Christ and how he will judge when he comes. He comes and he says, I'm going to separate in judgment those who are in me and those who are not, those who do not know me. Now, why is this part important? Because it's saying that Jesus Christ not only has the power to give life, he also has the power and the right to judge. And so the key is that's his ministry. It's not my ministry and it's not your ministry. Oftentimes, I wanna be careful with this. If you see somebody that you know and they're professed to be believers in Jesus Christ, but they're not showing evidence and fruit of being saved, they don't understand the gospel, they don't understand the things of God, you being concerned for their salvation is not judging. That's fruit inspecting. You got that, right? You're just sitting there going, man, I just don't know about this. I'm concerned for you. Here's the gospel. It's another thing when people get up and because somebody just doctrinally doesn't believe exactly the way that they do. Now, I'm not talking about the essential of the gospel itself, but in, in things of end times or whatever it is, when they look at that and they begin to judge, they're not saved. They're saved because they believe this. They're not saved. And you begin to take that on. That's not a place for you and I. In fact, in the gospel, what we find is that Jesus actually warned against this and he says, do not yourself try to separate the wheat and the tares within the church. He goes, in other words, don't go around being a sin sniffer for everybody going, oh, I don't know, man, they didn't come so many times. Therefore, they're probably out. We got to set them out and everything. He says, no, no, no. You let me do that. There's a certain level that we have to understand that we have regenerate church membership. You understand that, right? That, that when people are saying, hey, I want to come to, to, to join the church, we need to make sure the best we can that they're born again that they've actually repented and placed faith in Christ, that they understand the gospel. Would you understand that? Why? Because when we vote together and we make decisions together, we need to make sure that people have sanctified minds. So that's a good thing. But going around and spending your entire time trying to figure out who's in and who's out, he says, it's not your job. When I come, I'll separate the wheat and the chaff. And he has a superior ministry. Now, notice this third thing. And we're gonna get out a little bit early. <laughs> You getting excited? All right. I know, me too. All right. Oh, I don't know what that means. Uh, so anyway, number three, number three, Jesus superior in being. Jesus superior in being. Look, we pick up in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Lots of stuff going on here. Uh, we can't cover it all. 
we have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all present at one place, all doing different things. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit, who is a spirit, invisible spirit, uh, taking on um, a, an actual physical form of a dove that's descending upon Jesus at this point. Apparently, everybody around can see that. Uh, you hear the voice of God, the Father, from heaven, right? And so you have all this, Jesus is being baptized. You got all these different things going on. And certainly, there's great theological truth in this, but for time's sake, and for me try to drive home this point that Christ is superior, what I want to do is just answer a question that hopefully you're asking. It's the question we should be asking when we come to the text, and that is, why in the world is Jesus being baptized? Why would Jesus ultimately be baptized? Remember, this was a baptism. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. I don't know about you, but Jesus... Jesus that I read about in the word of God is in no need of repenting. Remember, he was born through a virgin birth, which means he didn't have a physical father, which means that he was not born with a sin nature. Thanks, men. The sin nature is passed down by you, all right? And so he didn't have that father. It wasn't passed down. He was born perfect, but then he was, he was what, tempted in every way through his life, and yet he sinned not. He was perfect. What is he being baptized for if he can't repent from sin? And I think the answer is, and I'll try to keep it brief, is is twofold. Number one is to obey. Number two is to identify. To obey, it seems as though that that John the Baptist himself, according to Matthew, Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, that he was a little confused as well when Jesus showed up. You can imagine. The one coming after me is greater than I. He's not going to baptize you with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, now repent to prepare for his coming, in essence. And so he says this, then Jesus comes up on the scene. And when Jesus comes, John says to him, he says, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? You see his confusion. Jesus responds, and I think we find the answer here. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was doing this as an act of obedience to the Father. He wasn't repenting from anything. That's not why he was being baptized. But his baptism, in his baptism, he was expressing full submission to the will of the Father. Do you know that this is what we do when we do water baptism? In water baptism, we all kind of say different things. It's just that the other pastors are wrong in what they say, and I'm right. So let me share how I I do this. I'm just joking. Uh, What I I say is this, is I say, I'll say, a person will come, and at the very last portion will say, buried with him in baptism. So here's a signal. Buried with him in baptism is showing that your old self is dead. And it died when Christ died on that cross and it was buried. It was forever gone. But just as Christ rose up from the grave anew, right? So you and I, when we come up out of that water, it's demonstrating that we are now new in Christ. So it says, buried with him in baptism. And then I say, raised to walk in a new life. In Christ. And so what he's showing here is it, through his baptism is not a repentance of sin, but what it is is a declaration of full submission and obedience to God to live after and to follow him in the life that God has called him to do. So the first part was obedience. The second part is to identify, is to identify. In hundreds of years, actually before um, Jesus at this particular time, uh, the prophet Isaiah said this, that the Messiah was numbered with the transgressors 
Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. In other words, he identified and was identified with sinners. Now, how was he identified with sinners? He didn't have any sin. He identified himself with them at the point of baptism. So here's kind of how it works. When we're baptized, okay, scriptural baptism, water baptism, when we're baptized, we are showing that we was what has happened. Through, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that we have been baptized in Christ. We're in him, right? So we are now in Christ. And so what that means is when God sees us, what does he see? Righteousness, righteousness. And, and that's what you and I celebrate about, right? We sit there and go, hey, when he sees us, he doesn't see all of our wickedness. He doesn't see all of our ill thoughts. He doesn't see the stuff that we were thinking about just last night at this time. He doesn't think about what's been raging in my heart already this morning. He doesn't see every sinful act. He doesn't see that. He sees us through the lens of Christ's righteousness, even though at the same time we're still sinners, right? Righteous sinners. It's a crazy thing, but that's how God sees us. But then, but then what's the point of Jesus and his baptism? Just as we identify with him in our baptism, guess what? He identified us at his baptism. But instead of identifying with us in righteousness, he identified with us in his sin, in our sin. So what he did was by identifying with us and being a part of us and being numbered with us, that means that years later when he actually fell on the cross and the wrath of God began to pour down, every wicked thought, every wicked action, every sinful deed that you and I have ever committed was now going to be placed on him. He would no longer see his son as he had seen them from eternity's past in all righteousness and in all fellowship. Instead, what he sees now is nothing but despicable sin. It's why he has to turn away. And so the reason that he comes, and this is, again, why we see he's a superior being, is because he took on our position. He identified with us. But the only reason that was able to profit for us is because he was able to do what you and I could not do, and that was be obedient where you and I could not. So when he dies on the cross, again, he is viewed as a sinner. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so this is what he's done for us. And so in his very being, he's able to do what you and I were incapable of ultimately doing, living a perfect life. And this is why, by the way, when he's baptized, it's in his perfection and in his perfect obedience that God looks down and says, what? Says this, you are my son to whom I am well pleased. Why is he well pleased? Fully, completely obedient to God. Guess what? You and I, Ain't never in this life. I used ain't purposely. Sorry, grammar. Sorry, Michelle. I'll take that. I'll repent later. But the idea there is there is no way you and I are going to be seen righteous before God apart from Jesus Christ. Even in the life in which you are living right now, you will never be perfected in this life. You will always struggle with the flesh you will become more and more like Jesus Christ every day because he promises that he who has begun a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So even in your struggle, even in your fight, that's a part of what the Christian life is all about. You will progress in your sanctification, but we will only be glorified when we see him in heaven. But in the meantime, he still looks down at all those who are in Christ and says, 
you are my son, you are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And we did not receive that pleasure because of our works, but because of his. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you for your, the power of your word. God, I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would just bind this on our minds and our hearts. God, we will recognize when we leave this place that you are superior to us in every way. And Lord Jesus, that we will glorify you. We will share you with others. God, we thank you and praise you above all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We'll stand and we're gonna have a time of prayer. I'm gonna be down here if you wanna come and pray or if you wanna come to the altar, whatever it is, let's just do business in light of what we've heard. Pray to God, thank God, repent before God, do whatever it is that the word of God has been stirring your heart to do as we pray.